0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the chatters and callers to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history, an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the AfroGenius and blog, talk, radio, research at the National Archives, and beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show will focus on a new book by author Mrs. Teresa Ara Kim. She will share resources used to write her new book, Keeper of the Fire. In this book, Mrs. Kemp discusses her Gullah Geechee culture and includes 480 pages of heritage research done by five generations of her family documenting their journeys across Africa to enslavement in America, representing more than 187 years of history in America. Mrs. Teresa R. Kemp is the fifth generation quilter, a historian and owner of plantation quilts and underground railroad.
0: Your recording Secret has reached the maximum length. To replay your message, press 1. To delete and re record your message, press 3. For delivery For options, we press have 4. A, we have a to bad send connection. a connection. press 6. To cancel this message, press star. To send this message now, press pound or hang up. Hope
1: everyone is not getting this message, but anyway, I would just like to welcome Mrs. to replay Teresa,
0: your message. Our press to delete to and re-record your message the national
1: press three. Archives For delivery and options,
0: press 4. We, it seems to you a, a message six. problem, to cancel this and I'm
1: going to try to see to send how I can stop now. that. Press pound so I or hang start up. will have some music playing and then we'll see what's going on with the this recording.
0: To replay okay, your message, I, press 1. To delete and re-record your message, Teresa, press 3.
1: I think this for delivery options, phone. press 4. Can you hear to me? send the
0: fax, press 6. To cancel this message, press star. To send this okay. message now, press pound or hang up.
1: Okay, we're having some kind of problems with this message system. Your message has so been let sent. let me see what's going Thank on. For I have some music
0: Leave your message for
1: 4044687050. Okay, it seems as if I'm having some technical difficulties with Teresa Kemp's line. Teresa, are you on? I'm going to have to try to call her back again to see what's going on with her line. And so, while I'm doing that, I hope that all of you will at least go to her uh blog spot and start looking at some of the resources that she has on her blog spot. it's uh underground railroad quilt code dot dot com I put the the listing in the phone, so I hope that you all will be able to at least go to the site until I can get uh, Teresa back on the line. Just please bear with me for a few minutes as I uh, work through this little uh, technical problem with her phone. I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, We were talking earlier, and now it doesn't seem as if she... Is on, so let me see what's happening and I'll play a little music and see. Uh, Teresa, are you on now? Okay, let me see what's going on with Teresa. I'm going to play music again and then I'll try to see what I can do to find her. Hello there. Okay, I'd like to welcome Teresa Kemp to to research at the National Archives and beyond. Teresa, unfortunately, we were having some technical problems. What I do need you to do, Teresa, is to lower your computer because we're getting feedback. Okay. Got it. Okay, thank you very much, and Teresa, I just introduced you to everyone, and so uh, welcome to the show, and Teresa, why don't you start off by telling us what motivated you to write Keeper of the Fire?
2: Well, every generation of my family since my first ancestor, Peter Farrell, arrived in America. They have documented and kept their history by a griot method. A griot is a person who memorizes a history of a people verbatim. It could be a Quran, It could be the Torah. But they memorize scripture, families, events, and then pass that skill down generation to generation. So my first generation documented their existence, and I like to say they left breadcrumbs on the path least taken. And Peter Farrell, my first generation, came from Africa, had a son, named him after himself, taught him his history, that he was from uh, what is currently Nigeria. Peter had a daughter named Nora. Nora had my grandmother, Mary Eva. Mary Eva had my mother, Serena Wilson. And she had me, so I've studied 40 years under my mother, collecting documents and family history. And my mother and father have passed without us completing the work. So finally, I got my second wind after losing my mom 2012, my dad 2013, and made up my mind that I was not going to let this fall on the next generation because there's no one that has studied under me that long though my children and family members are involved and we have family reunions and things like that, but not as intense as my mom and I had done. So this generation is going to be the one where we find our family members who were sold away in slavery, we get books, and we put to rest whether or not the quote code was true, whether it was done by African people, how it worked and provide primary sources, and tonight, Your program is giving me that opportunity. So I wanted to honor my parents, honor my Igbo culture, because when you talk about my European history, it is documented back to the year 149 A.D. So I'd like to invite those who are listening and those in the chat room, if they'd like to go to familysearch.org, they can Google any of my ancestors, and they will see, the Strother family, if they Google David Richardson Strother, my late mother, Serena Strother Wilson, they can follow generation by generation in FamilySearch.org, I've done back to 1352. But when it comes to this African ancestry, there are four different methods, widely disputed, constantly debated online. So I wanted to put down the history because when Britain colonized Nigeria, they changed the history from what I've learned. So the more Igbo people I meet, the more different I find the history is I was taught than the ones that they were taught by the British. So it was very important. While I was in my right mind, I've had chemotherapy, radiation, congestive heart failure and surgery from cancer, that while I had this window of opportunity, I got that book complete. Because my great-grandfather was born in 1814. My grandfather, 1850s. My mother's the 1930s. So if I fall without doing it, we're going to have this big gap.
1: <laughs> right. Well, you know what? One of the things that, that you will hear on my show, and I'm really happy that people are doing this, is to tell your story. And so to entitle your book, Keeper of the fire it, it means something. I mean you are keeping this this Information flowing, so I want you to really help us understand How do you know your history? Just take us through kind of your uh, Journey to find and discover your history. How do you know it?
2: well I've been very fortunate in that my family lives a long time, and we've had living people without any breaks in our generations for over 187 years here in America. On my mother's paternal side, the Strother family, as I was telling you, is so well documented because they're one of the 500 royal families that immigrated to the United States in 1850. I'm I'm sorry, 1650s, and so we have copies of the Wills, University of Virginia, our family archive is the Atlanta History Center archive in Atlanta, Georgia. The family for all these generations has chosen that as an archive and deposited things there. The library that I use uh, when I started going in and researching family genealogy, in Atlanta, Georgia, the downtown library has the Fifth Ford Genealogy section. They actually have a Strother book. My Revolutionary War, American Revolutionary War family history was documented by my grandfather's sister, Sally Hollinsworth Strother. And she was a member of Daughters of the American Revolution Old 96th. And she was the historian for Daughters of American Revolution. So each generation of my family has loved history. So with the African side of our family, it was very important that they saved their documents. And every place that I went and visited museums, archives, we've taken travel trips. My mother had 17 brothers and sisters. Her mother uh, was born in 1910 and had four children. My aunt, my mother's sister, is still living though my grandfather was born in 1850, so for any of his children to be living is amazing. I have four great-aunts who are in their 90s and a great-uncle, and I have one family member who's 105. So one of the techniques that I want to encourage our listeners tonight to do is to, to master the art of interviewing senior community members and senior family members. I've been fortunate that much of it is done. The only part that I'm doing is reconciling Nicknames conflicting records. We are doing our Native American history and now our African history. I wanted to make connections and better understand the culture so we would we would be able to know about what they told us. A lot of what we were told about our African ancestry, we did not even understand it because my um, when my grandfather told my mother, it was, I'm sorry, my great, my mother's great grandfather, he called them the little ebo gals. He never told them what Igbo was. And, and he who told, told us we you this come,
1: before? Who was this? My was, mother. Called you, your mother, little Igbo girl. okay?
2: My mother and her sister were called the little ebo gals by her great grandfather. And he is the son of of the abolitionist Peter Farrow, who came from Nigeria. So, his my first African ancestor's son was living. My mother knew him and his um, children, and but didn't understand what Igbo was until in the 70s. When we met, I was going to college and in the airport, we overheard a young lady on the on the telephone saying that she was Igbo. She was looking for other Igbo people. So we waited and when she got off the phone we asked her, "What is Igbo?" And she started laughing at us, you know, and saying, "She's Igbo." And Igbo can be a place, it can be the name, it can be used in a lot of different ways. And he would tell us stuff like when the monkey scream run to the tree. And Everybody will be fed. And for years, I never could understand those things until I was watching a National Geographic. And when the fruit ripens, the monkeys are very territorial, and they begin to fight in the very upper canopy of the trees. And the fruit falls from the trees and feeds the people down to the ants, wild animals. But a lot of the culture I didn't understand or know. So tonight our listeners are going to see how we began to document that by, my mother made five research trips to Africa, one to Israel. Much of this culture, they declared them Jews in 2007. So we have the Jewish archives online so that people will be able to see 5,000 Jewish genealogies that have been put to graves. But when they do a Jewish timeline or an indigo timeline, they leave out West Africa, they leave out India, they leave out Asia and the United States. So we've had to document the skill set of the people and why was this group Jewish or not Jewish. And naturally, everybody in your neighborhood is not of the same religion usually. Your next-door neighbor has a different belief. And so for anyone to be able to continue their religious and community and ethnic beliefs in America is unusual. My family on the Gullah what you're calling the Gullah Geechee Coast, which is Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, coastal areas, usually within about 50 miles of the coast. My family had absentee owners. They were on the Glen County, Georgia, Dover Hall Plantation. So our our listeners that are in the chat room should be able to see the plantation documents under the first generation in that website, what I put um, the it's U-G-R-R, quilt code, dot com. They can go to the post that says first generation Peter and Eliza Farrow Sr. And they'll begin to see the documents of my first generation. He was a Igbo Metalsmith and he came from Oka. Oka has songs, they have legends and they, these metalsmiths had craft guilds. They would travel within 150 miles of their village, and I, used, I knew that my family was here in America by 1845. We, you'll see the plantation documents in this blog spot for Peter and for Eliza. Their first owner was Thomas Dover, and in order to find records on Thomas Dover, we found him in England, And we found his nephew, William Dover Jenkins, the second owner. Here you'll see, um, I didn't put the links in, but we have hundreds of plantation documents. And the first one that you come to is that Peter and Eliza, along with the other slaves on this plantation, were valued. They were valued four times, but I just put one of their valuations from 1845 in. So any records I wanted to find for, for them in Africa, I had to look before 1845. So I began to go to JSTOR. JSTOR is an archival deposit of people who are applying for Ph.D.s, research papers, colleges, universities, individuals that have written papers on different subjects. And so I put in the word Igbo. It is now spelled I-G-B-O. But over the centuries, it's been IBO, and in my research, I found out it started out Heboos, H-E-E-B-O-E-S. And there are some posters here in America selling fine Heboos. that came from the Bight of Biafra, or other terms that are used to describe the coastal areas of Nigeria, what is now Togo, Ghana, Cameroon. And they were sold throughout, um, well, throughout the world because these metalsmiths could look at the ground and they knew how to find lead, tin, copper, gold, jewels, and not just see them or find them, but they could extract them and shape them into fine metals, religious artifacts, tools, weapons, and they did what's called the lost wax process which is another characteristic of how I could find my ancestry or prove them to be from East Africa. The Egyptians enslaved Hebrew people that were metalsmiths. And in the Bible, I used it as a source to say who did David assemble to do the second temple. When David was built, wanted to build a temple and restore it, he didn't get to, his son Solomon did, but David assembled Craftsmen, weavers, people who could dye indigo, metalsmiths, and the Bible in the scriptures tells you where and who had these skills. At some point, these groups migrated from East Africa to West, and it's disputed whether they went West to East or East to West. But what I did is I used DNA also, and I posted a picture of my DNA results that settled that in terms of my particular family. So once okay, you look now at the wait Do- a
1: minute. I want I I need to I need to stop you. <laughs> I need to okay. stop you and back up because you you're getting you're getting a little ahead of me. So let me take okay. you back a while. Okay. Let's go back to Peter and Elijah Farrell. Now Peter okay. and Eliza Farrell are documented on the Dover Plantation. And that plantation, Dover Hall plantation. is loca- mm-hmm. it's located in South Carolina.
2: Glen County, Georgia.
1: Correct? And Wayne, the Dover Hall
2: plantation. It's in Glen County, Georgia. Peter and Eliza, son, well, or daughter, purchased land in McCormick, South Carolina, which is where you have our South Carolina connection. That land has okay. been in our family, and that's where my mother and father are buried. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and so. Uh, with Peter and Eliza, and then you're saying 1840 is where you found them documented in in uh, slave records. When were they born, and were they born in America, or were they born in Africa?
2: They were born in Africa. We okay. knew Eliza was. I wasn't positive about Peter. Um, when I looked at their son's. US census records. We have a eighteen eighty census for the first Peter and Eliza Farrow Senior is what I'm going to call them to differentiate. His first US census record that I have, he's twenty one years old in eighteen eighty. And on the so census record is twenty one
1: and this is senior. So senior was born. No, no, in junior.
0: Africa? Junior.
1: Junior, okay. No, senior was born in Africa and this is junior that's 21 years old on the 1880 census. Correct. Okay. All right. And so you trace senior back to East Africa.
2: West Africa and my DNA goes from East Africa to West. Mhm. Okay. But
1: okay, I'm just trying to to follow your your scenario. And so the beginning of your research began with oral history. And from oral, hi- from oral history, and you said that your mother's father, now how old was your mother's father and when was he born?
2: We have four different dates for Milton Strother, and in each of the census records, he gets younger. I have an 1860 record with his mother, 1870 record with his mother. In the 1880 census, Milton is in his 20s and living with his half-brother in Edgefield, South Carolina. And by the time my mother is born and his death record, they have him at 50 years old in 1943 which, of course, it cannot be correct because he had um, 11 children born in the 1800s and nine of my mother's brothers and sisters passed for white, Hispanic. and um, But my grandfather's mother is Native American and his father was born in 1814, died in 1870, David Richardson Strother. So my grandfather and my mother's great-grandfather were friends and knew each other and lived in close proximity. My mother's sisters and brothers knew Peter Farrow Senior's son. He was a pastor. So on the um, Underground Railroad Quilt Code blog spot, after we go and see the first slave valument, then I also showed how the Library of Congress documented their neighbors Pierce Butler with the Retreat Plantation. There were 45 blacksmiths, and they hired these men out. So they have receipts at the Glynn County, Georgia, Doverhall Hall Plantation, probated estate records, that show that, the, um, that they were sold by him being a blacksmith. He would travel around here. He had absentee owners six months out the year and would then... Bring a percentage of the proceeds back to his owner when the owner returned, because they had yellow fever and malaria in this area. Okay,
1: so okay, so back to uh, Peter Fell Jr. of, of okay. whom you said you found in 1880. Where yes. was he in 1870?
2: In South Carolina.
1: Okay, so Junior was in South Carolina, and Junior, uh, your mother's father is a strotter, or grandfather strotter. who who belongs to the Farrell. Is this your father? Peter
2: Farrell. Daughter? Peter Farrell's granddaughter married Milton Strather.
1: Got it. Okay. Okay. Now we're putting it together. Okay, and so you have uh, taken the Farrell family back to Africa. You know that they are Igbo. And so you were telling us about various documents that you had reviewed. And one was the Dover Hall Estate Inventory. And so what other uh, documents were you able to identify for the Farrells?
2: They're listed in two plantation wills, 1844, eight, well, the owner died in 1845, and then also the 18, um, 1858, and I, Peter and Eliza are named in those wills, and un- what's unusual about those wills is that they were allowed to keep their own money for their benefit, they were given warm and comfortable clothes, they named them along with other slaves in those two wills, and those are on the blog post for people to see. So it was probated, the first one, in 1845, and then the second one, um, I put the census record on there in between that of William Dover Jenkins. It shows that he was born in England in in 1794, and then there's several estate inventories and other documents so they could see the wealth, what type of belongings he had, that they had cotton and carts and oxen, um, the contents of the house, and then the final will of the second owner. And when he died in 1858, he willed Peter and Eliza in number seven to Joseph R. Richard and his children, but they were not to be subject to the man's debts. And Peter, not believing he was going to have the same type of freedom, purchased his freedom, purchased his wife's Eliza's freedom, and they continued to work as abolitionists on the Underground Railroad using what's called the Quilt Code. So we were, I didn't really understand how it was done until I got to know the culture of the people.
1: I understand. Okay, now there's a question coming out of the chat room, uh, and the question is, who was born in 1794, the owner or Peter Sr.?
2: The owner is listed as being owned on the u s census record that I have in the chat well in the chat room discussion at the blog post but William Dover Jenkins is the second owner of Peter and Eliza senior and the owner of the Dover hall plantation he was the census record shows he was born in England. Another okay, so note I'd like to say.
1: Okay, so, so what we have now and what you have presented to us is that you found three, three different transactions on your ancestors. But there was a point in time where your ancestors uh, were able to uh, raise a, a hold on to some money and they bought their freedom. And then Peter and uh, Eliza then became abolitionists.
2: They were abolitionists while they were slaves. And what's interesting, we actually have about 25 documents for Peter and Eliza. So I put the wills out here, but I also put the 1860 Glen County, Georgia uh, slave records that show two free um, African or African-American people living in Glen County, Georgia. They were the only two free people living there in 1860 and our oral history had said they bought their freedom but they didn't say that they moved away from glenn county or where they lived so i put those records out there also so that people could see how do i know they were then free what do i have to confirm that prior to them coming to america our family's oral history they told us they came through rio de janeiro brazil but there wasn't a slave port there so valango was unearthed in 2011 and was covered over in 1838 or 33 by the Brazilian king. He wanted to marry a Portuguese princess and told her he didn't have slavery in Rio de Janeiro when he did. And so they um, covered in the slave port, and it's been covered hundreds of years. And I had found a um, newspaper article that showed that slaves were thrown overboard so they didn't have to pay the port tax if they were sickly at the Rio de Janeiro port. And I began to look at the international archives and found that people from all over the world were taken there and enslaved and sold. Some there in Brazil, and then other ones went on like my ancestors did to uh, the Caribbean and North America, well, uh, United States.
1: Yeah, Okay. so I'm having, I mean, there's, there's always interaction that's coming out of the chat room. So one clarification again, they purchased their freedom? The pharaohs purchased their freedom? Yes,
2: Yes. in 1858. And
1: how were were they abolitionists while they were still enslaved? What did you find uh, to support the abolitionists' um, discussion or oral history of your family?
2: Okay, that's a very good question. And what we had to do was make lists of people who were on the different plantations where Peter was hired out to work. Eliza was a midwife. Peter was a blacksmith. And what they said was, people would come up missing, and the quilting pr- the quilting um, house where Eliza worked went twenty four hours a day. They worked on the large plantations. So I actually put a list out here of the largest slaveholders, because they needed lots of babies delivered. Liza was said to have never lost a patient or the child. So that was money. So they wanted her to come to the plantations, deliver the babies. She taught women to quilt, sew, and weave. We're the Gullah basket weavers still. We're quilters and textile artists. And they would plan and execute slave escapes. And nobody thought that they were speaking a language or using a symbolism that they had cut in their skin and on their bodies that could identify people from the Ebo tribe. And when we talk when I talk about the Igbo tribe, I also put some maps out there so that people could see what I grew up learning, that all of West Africa was one country. And from Sub-Sahara to the tip of Africa, Atlantic to Pacific, and it was called Ethiopicus Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean was named that, was one country called Ethiopia, and on one of the maps I put out here in the chat room, or on the blog post for the chat room participants and our listeners to see, I put four maps out there so that they could see that that was one country. So that's why you find some Igbo people who are in Ghana, some who are now Mandingo, some who are the tribe of Dan, or they lived in Home, some of them... um, they have kept and retained linguistic characteristics that tie them together and customs that are celebrated throughout West Africa and Central Africa, even in East Africa. And I was told that the country marks, I put several pictures out here of the country marks and the quilt patterns cut into the stomachs, the backs and the bodies and faces of the people And that's how they could identify the people who were from their groups. So you can imagine if you have six brothers and sisters, the seniors, they have children, children's children, they could identify them by their hair designs, marks on their faces, bodies, arms, backs, and with the skill sets that they had and their language. Even here in America, no matter where they were, they could identify them. And they all spoke this textile language that's transferred face-to-face by imitation, a form of communication that's universal.
1: Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and then come back and continue this discussion by looking at some of the other sources that you've used. And then we uh, will continue on with, with this discussion. So just a quick break. Okay. Denise,
2: this child.
1: all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Mrs. Teresa R. Kemp, author of Keeping the Fire, and she has shared with us just various details about some of her research and the methodology that she followed to document her family's history. Now, she has been telling us about the Farrell family and the fact that she discovered some documents in which they were listed in three different uh, estate inventories. She also found information of about them on the slave records, and she also spoke of the Igbo culture. Now, we're going to go back to uh, Mrs. Kemp so that she can tell us about some of the military records that she uncovered about her family. And remember, the discussion is about Keeper of the Fire. So, Teresa, please continue to share with us the documents that you have found on your family to develop this 480-plus page book of your heritage research.
2: Okay. With our military history, we have—I keep saying—we our our family is large. I have two American Revolutionary War family members, and I have one hundred and sixty Confederate family members, fifty-eight Union family members. I have people who fought in the War of um, the Indian Wars, the World War I. We have 12 that fought the last battle of World War I. We have a lot in World War II, the Korean conflict, and Vietnam Wars, and more current ones. And so I've become a military historian because I have been able to accumulate over 1,073 records of my family's Civil War service. There are probably a little over 100 records through the help of Sonia Hodges, who's a military historian in, for the 371st Colored Troops. Uh, Twelve of my ancestors were actually in the 371st. And so Sonia really got me started with that and had reconnected parts of our family that are very diverse. David Richardson Strother, my great grandfather was in the CSA, or Confederate States of America um, Army. He was in South Carolina's 2nd Regiment, Company K. So again, using the genealogy sources at my public library, I was able to find books that contained Confederate service of my grand, great-grandfather, David. I had contacted the National Archives and asked them to send me his photograph. It said they had a photograph of him, and when the photograph arrived, it was David Hunter Strother, who was also related to me and he's listed under the name Port de Crayon. And he did many he was a he was a officer in the Union Army. And so at first I'm thinking, oh yes, my ancestors Union. And I was preparing, they asked me if I would do a lecture at our library called How to Find Your Civil War Ancestors. And because I'm an African-American person, when I arrived, all the posters said, How to Find Your African or African-American Civil War Ancestors. So I I had properly prepared because I knew that um, Atlanta has a large African and African-American community, very diverse community, so I also prepared to show people how to find military records from the Polish people who had fought in the Revolutionary War, Hispanic people. I just had every nationality there. I had women, the Zonarevas, we had scouts and spies like Harriet Tubman. And orators and nurses like Sojourner Truth, I had everybody there. So then as I continued speaking and doing PowerPoint presentations, because this is quite some time ago when records were not digitized the way they are today, I had the books there for people. We had um, copies for them and created packets for them. And we have the website, which is www.plantationquilts.com. I have a military history page and it shows you how to get involved with community activities, attend reenactments. We honor some of the speakers that have come and people who have taught me things and veterans who have died and passed in our family. Well, long story short, I get halfway through the presentation and I tell them, your ancestor may not have been a man. Many of the women went to war pretending to be women. I mean, pretending to be men so that they could go to war with their sons or with their husbands. And I said, or they might be white like my ancestor. And you're looking through African and African-American records when your family members are not either. So my grandfather's listed as mulatto. His mother is Native American. Her Her mother was listed as Cherokee. And the more I began checking through the Dawes records looking for um, their Native Ameri- my Native American heritage and the African heritage to see were they African and joined the Native American tribe, which is the case with some of our family members. We have our Igbo family, and I mean our African and African American family out of Florida. They are Seminole Indian and Ebo. And then okay. We have- so
1: let's let's go. Let's move. We believe it or not, we're getting really close to moving oh, on okay. with the show. And I know you want to really give us some some great detail, <laughs> but I I just want you just to just briefly touch up on some of the other documents you don't have to go into great details but I do know okay. that you did you did look into state hospital records you did look at voter yes. registration records yes. and and even some insurance records so just tell us briefly what you uncovered and then tell us how we can can get your book to read more about keeper of the fire
2: Okay, what I did on the blog post, I put copies of the military history sites that we used, newspapers, we, I used lots of legislation. When they were freed after serving, um, I used contraband camps, and Levi Coffin's great-great-granddaughter is a friend of mine, and Levi Coffin's book actually details contraband camps and settlements of free Africans or escaped Africans and African-Americans where people can find the record. So in the book Reminiscence of um, Levi Coffin has a lot of detail, and I have those communities. And then we use the escaped slave records to document Igbo people who had escaped. I use the prison, the sheriffs, and county prison or uh, jail. They were called goals. I use those records to document how many people escaped from areas where my ancestors worked because the owners of escaped people would put money on the books and send bounty hunters after the after their escaped people. And when the people were caught and returned, the money was paid out. So all of the money left on the books mean the people were either escaped or they were killed. And so what and where did we did you is find then we turned
1: where did you find? Um,
2: it? They're at, they're at the national, they're at the state, national and county archives. One of my friends was visiting Mobile, Alabama. I asked her to go to the county archive and if she would check for slave records. They sent her downstairs to the basement, and they had hundreds of decaying papers and pages of the books. And so they allowed her to copy over three hundred pages for our museum archives. And then when we compared it to the books, we only found about 10 who had been returned and the others escaped. So we can assume that the other people escaped successfully, but I never thought people were escaping from Mobile, Alabama. We also have the Catholic parish records from Louisiana and lots of different places, Wisconsin, where the diocese, the Catholic diocese documented free and slave people. So I have those archives online. I have the slave database, Voyages. Um, I have that online where you can find African names for people who were enslaved in America. We did not all lose our names. I use those prison records to fill in soft facts between census years because in the escaped slave advertisements, um, it will tell you their height. It says they have country marks. It will give you their skill set, that he was a um, a seaman, he was a carpenter. You know, it'll describe the women, the clothes they had on, their personalities. That Some of them are listed as being outlandish. So then I also use cemetery gravestones, um, list my family's military service. We have family cemeteries. And during one family reunion, we took a van full of people, over to Edgefield, South Carolina, they had the circuit churches. So we went to six different churches, photographed the churches, the cemeteries, and many of the churches have archives. We've spoke at the first um, first Baptist church, African church in Savannah, Georgia, and celebrated their 200th anniversary. Our family were not allowed to worship at synagogues, but nine different African nationalities built the church, and they have hundreds of years of records. So we have churches of the Underground Railroad uh, programs that we do, and in those programs I'm going to be speaking at a Presbyterian church, but the Unitarians, Congregationalists, Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Jewish people even assisted getting Peter Stills, uh, Peter Still, which is William Stills' brother, free out of Alabama. We have Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina abolitionists. We have over... 38 different methods of escape listed, and death is actually one legislation freed by their owners, freed by courts. We have so many different successful methods. One man played the lottery and purchased his freedom. Other people pushed pigs from a wheelbarrow a, a with a pig in it from town to town. Many people know Henry Box Brown's story. They know Ellen Craft's story where they disguised one person who was lighter mulatto as a white man. And then the other, her husband, was um, portrayed as a slave and they took the trains to freedom. But we talk about different abolitionist societies. There were female abolition societies. There were so many different societies that worked internationally. Frederick Douglass met with John Brown the night before they did the Harper's Ferry raid. They exchanged papers, and John Brown had wanted Frederick Douglass to even fight with them, and Frederick Douglass went to him the night before and kept him up all night asking him, please don't do this, and I found the okay, most so, moving so, Teresa, quote. I I
1: need, I need to stop you. <laughs> I need to stop okay. you because I need to go back for a second. Uh, there's a question coming out of the chat. They did not hear... Where you obtain the information um uh, some of this information, and what I want to do is to tell people to to go to your blog spot because I think that's where some of your information is on your blog spot, but also yes. with your plantationquilts.com, dot com would they get additional information on plantationquilts.com? dot com
2: yes. On plantationquilts.com, I have a traveling exhibit page. We have an online museum gallery. I actually have over 40,000 artifacts, African and plantation artifacts, on my family. We have um, 1, 000, over 1,000 textiles that have been collected and passed down by travels through my family and our research trips and gifts to the museum that pertain to our family. And then I have a Kids Place page. We have the research page and methodology used in collecting our family information and sources. And then I give copies of documents to anybody doing research reports, um, college students, somebody working on a dissertation, or even people who just want to document their family. I do this freely. I tell them to email me. If you're doing it for homework, don't wait till the day or night before because sometimes I'm traveling where there's not Internet service. The book, Plan- uh, Keeper of the Fire, will be available. It's on Amazon.com. I self-published it at createspace.com. But if they go to the website plantationquilts.com, they can find news and events of upcoming things. I'm doing a book signing in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Presbyterian Church in Decatur on February the 7th. And on the sixth, I'm going to be in South Carolina with Sonia Hodges at her genealogy event. So I'm excited about both of those. But I put events on there, and then I have the video so they could look and see what the museum used to look like. I'm reopening a museum in 2016 fall in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. So there's so okay. much information.
1: It's it's so much, and and you were I mean I know it's it's kind of hard to to tell everybody everything in an hour. But this is one of those shows where it's almost impossible to just tell everything that's in your your brain so that people could really understand, you know, where you're going, how you're flowing with your information. But certainly I want to thank you for coming on tonight to share with us Keeper of the Fire and why it's so important not only to tell your story, but also to document your sources. So that for every story that comes out of your family's history, you want to be able to at least verify that. And as you started off, you told us that there was oral history, and then you took us on, on several different paths to find out just where your family was, and also other resources that you took a look at. And so for that, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, everyone, I hope that you all will tune in next week. I will have the descendants of the Solomon Northup family. And they represent or are part of the foundation. They head up the foundation. And so you will have an opportunity to hear more about this foundation and the history that this family uh, has gathered and the information that they want everyone to to know and to understand about their ancestor so good night everyone thank you so much mrs Teresa kemp and remember your ancestors left footprints therefore you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, and research at the National Archives and Beyond. You can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com. Facebook pages, and also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services LLC. My website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Teresa.